everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I am speaking again with Bacha Ungar Sargon. Bacha is the Deputy Opinion Editor at Newsweek. I think I got that right. And she's also yeah. the author of the great recent book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Hi, Bacha. Thank you for coming back on. Thank you so much for having me. So, yeah, I, I've got to say, I loved your book because I've... No, I mean, I, I noticed the media stuff, some of it, when I was overseas, and it's just little things. Um, I was in Haiti after the earthquake, so Hurricane Thomas hit, and I'm watching the CNN news report, and there was a little creek in Port-au-Prince that we would drive by as we were going back to where we were living. And there was always people there getting water, washing up, whatever. And the, the reporter is like, oh, my God, it's the hurricane's awful. People are going to yell like people are like terrified, this or that. And I walk outside, like meet a couple people. The flag, the flag on the flagpole is completely still. Like we light a lighter and the flame doesn't even flicker. And I, and I was just like, just things like that. So I was just like, okay, you know, there's something not right here. And then when I got back, I got back in 2014 and I saw that incident with, um, I believe her name was Melissa Click at Mizzou. She was the journalism professor and there was a student reporter at a protest at the school and then she called for muscle to have that student removed. Now she's a professor of journalism and she's having a student reporter mm. from a protest. And I was like, okay, there's something wrong here. I mean, she ended up getting fired and people were like, oh, well, she got fired. She got taken care of. It's like, well, no. What led her to think like that? So, yeah, you're, I mean, like I said, your book touched on so much of that. So if you wouldn't mind like going into your book a little bit and talking about it. and Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's basically what I wanted to understand with the book was I wanted to sort of crack this puzzle, which is, you know, I knew that the views that I was increasingly seeing dominating the national liberal news media did not reflect what most even liberals that I know thought. And I wanted to understand how this, you know, woke ideology came to have such a stranglehold on the media when the market for that to me seemed to be much smaller than the market for reasonable journalism. And yet increasingly, this was the only kind of journalism you could see outside of Fox News. So I, I, that was sort of the puzzle that I wanted to understand. Like I knew that the very radical, binary, critical race theory view of race and gender um, that we increasingly call woke and that we increasingly see dominating the news um, did not reflect how most of the liberals I knew thought, um, most of the people of color that I know didn't, don't think this way, no working class people that I know think this way. And yet it seemed like all of those people had been abandoned by a, a, um, a news media that is actually profit driven. So I wanted to understand where those profits were coming from, because it seemed to me it couldn't be coming from the numbers because these views are kooky. <laughs> so that's really what I wanted to understand. And um, you know, tying into sort of this example you just gave where that professor, a woman teaching journalism, right, would call the authorities to protect herself from having a journalist do journalism, right? A student do journalism. Oh, sorry, um, I'm just going to interrupt for one second. She did, not, she did not ask for authorities. She was calling other students over saying, we need muscle over here. 
Those are exact uh, words. Uh-huh, so okay, uh-huh. so sorry, just being a little pedantic. <laughs> no, no, good. I'm glad. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember the exact details, but it totally tracks. Like, when did journalists become on the side of muscle, right? On the side of protecting people from having to answer questions rather than making them answer questions, and it's part of the same thing, right? Like the view of you know certain people as being too weak or too vulnerable or too marginalized to um, be asked to bear the brunt of, you know, responsibility for their actions, right? Which is sort of very much baked into the woke worldview. So, um, and what I found was that throughout the course of the 20th century, American journalism had undergone a class revolution, a status revolution. Uh, journalism used to be a working class job, a blue collar job that you picked up on, you know, on the job. You, you didn't go to school for it. You didn't go to college. Most journalists were not college educated. It was a low status job that was considered, you know, the people who were journalists were not, um, it was not considered a glamorous job. It was not considered something that gave you status. And so journalists very much identified with the working class that they belonged to. And they saw themselves as sort of outside of power, demanding justice for the little guy who was always outside of power and fast forward to today and journalists are one of the most highly educated um, uh, industries in America. They are also now by and large part of the top 10%. You have to essentially come from money in order to become a journalist because it's so hard to break into. And um, the opening salary is so low, but you have to live in the most expensive American cities, which is the only place there still is sort of a thriving journalism culture. And so as journalists became part of the elites, they abandoned the working class that they used to belong to, as well as all of their issues. And what I argue in the book is that the woke capture is just the latest stage of highly affluent, highly educated liberal journalists' abandonment of the working class, where essentially, instead of talking about the huge class chasm in America and the huge levels of income inequality in America, um, they talk about race and they've sort of moved the scene of American inequality away from class where it really is to race where I don't believe it really exists. And the reason they've done that is because liberals, like I said, that um, people in the knowledge industry job have very much benefited from the class inequality. And so it's very uncomfortable to talk about it. Um, Better to talk about race because you can't do anything about your race, right? All you can do is feel guilty, which is of course something liberals really enjoy. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I don't know, like there's that, that guilt thing. I mean, it's part of the wasp, you know, ethic. I mean, it's, you know, it, it certainly comes in with like, you know, uh, my mom, my mom grew up in Pakistan, so it certainly comes in with like South Asian moms, and like you know, and then you have the stereotype of Jewish moms with the guilt as well. So I, I guess, yeah, absolutely. I guess you know, like all these people going to college and picking this up, but like that's the one thing, like the you know, you'd mentioned the colleges and the class struggle. Like, oh, okay, I went to university. I don't work. I got a poli sci. You know, I did my BA in poli sci. I never went past that. And I work in IT, so you know, like my education helps me out in Jeopardy, and that's about it. Um, <laughs> um, but I would notice it, like the like I got out of school in '95, so it's, I'm a little bit earlier. But I would notice it when I was working overseas. The people who had gone to college, so the people who were like the accountants um, or like the admin staff and whatever, there was an air of superiority over like the trades people and even like the IT techs. And it's like, okay, this guy's keeping your communications running and you've got 
you know, a master's in social work and you're looking down at them? Like, I mean, you know, they're, and so was that part of it? Was it just like this thing where college became a status symbol? Because I mean, I, you know, in the eighties, when I was in high school, I started seeing that push where yeah, everyone has to go to college. Everyone has to go to college. And they were like kind of shunning the trade schools, which I think was a, like a huge disservice, but is that kind of what happened with like journalism or one of the things that happened with it? It's like college became a status symbol. So these people are lowly. They're not as intelligent. So we're the benighted. We have to, well, we have to impart the wisdom. Like it was like a paternal type thing or. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I say this as a person with a PhD, the number one thing they teach you at university is to have contempt for people without a university degree. It's absolutely a status symbol. And, you know, of course, so what you had in America was you had all of these soldiers coming back after the Second World War, taking advantage of the GI Bill, suddenly there was a huge number of people going to college for the first time. And so going to college was no longer enough of a status symbol. You had to go to a fancy college, right? And you're seeing that now in journalism to where, you know, okay, so around the 60s and 70s was when the um, revolution really started and journalists started increasingly coming from the college educated set. And so what happened was, you know, it was no longer enough to have gone to college, you have to have gone to a fancy college. And now, especially with the collapse of the local news industry, where there are so few American journalism jobs, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, NPR, they take the vast majority of their interns from the top 1% of universities only because they can, right? Like that's purely the point of the internship is to teach you how to be a journalist. Like what difference does it make if you go to Harvard or Princeton or if you go to Michigan State, right? But no, that's that's the, because it's about fancy, right? It's not about actually an education. You can't teach journalism. Like you can't teach someone to be a good listener and to question their biases. And they certainly aren't teaching that at American universities. They're teaching people how to reinforce their confirmation bias and shut down anybody who disagrees with them. And yet those are the people now who are increasingly lording it over their elders at American newsrooms and then going onto Twitter and sort of getting them fired when they don't hew to the correct ideology. So it's very much tied to, you know, the woke capture of the university, which used to be like safely ensconced in the ivory tower. And you had a whole bunch of academics who were kooks and like, it didn't matter. Right. But now because of the way that our, in our economy works, it's extremely, extremely uh, lucrative for people in knowledge industry jobs and extremely, extremely terrible for people without a college degree. So two thirds of American Americans without a college degree, not only have to suffer the sneering and contempt of people who have a piece of paper, right, that proves that somebody in their family or they themselves were able to pay $120,000 for them to learn absolutely nothing, but not only do they have to endure that contempt, but they have to endure it while doing jobs that actually matter and not being able to support their families on them. I mean, that's the real injustice of the whole thing. Yeah, the, the, the school thing. But, okay, I wonder... So I'm going to lay out a little bit of a hypothesis here. And like, th this might be a complete tinfoil hat theory, but this is just okay, like, okay, I love I'm conspiracy theories. Okay. Oh, but I'm okay. I'm somewhat like, I'm, I'm somewhat not, I shouldn't say certain, but like I, I have some confidence in it because I've heard other people like John McCorder echo some of the things I'm saying. Um, now this is just based off me reading, like starting to read, critical race theory. Like I said, I did poli sci in the nineties. So, you know, I had some postmodernism and post-colonialism. Like I, I had some of that back then, but the actual like critical race theory and all that stuff for me, reading it and looking at the timeline of when it came out. So intersectionality as a framework got adapted in like between 90 and 92, it got adopted in the universities. And that's where that framework really took place. 
So based on that, by the end of the 90s, that's when you were start, starting to have the first PhDs, I guess, come out with like, you know, social studies or sociology, but, you know, focusing on African-American studies or like in any of the studies departments, like feminist studies or gender studies or whatever, you're getting that intersectional framework framework. And these people are coming out. And then, I mean, some of the stuff you'd mentioned in your book, and I think you also mentioned Zach Goldberg's work, like some of the work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So around 2000, or let's say if you want to go to 9-11, when the Bush administration, you're like, okay, you had the attack, then okay, you're going to go to Iraq, you're going to go to Afghanistan, you know, all the racism, the Islamophobia thing. So they're going out and hiring, you know, people to like diversity consultants or whatever people to, to work on racism problems, isn't that? they're getting these PhDs. You know, these people are going into HR in all kinds of places. Like I'm sure in the media, I'm sure in, you know, like newsrooms, uh, entertainment, but anyway, they're become the HR. By Obama's first term, you've managed to get enough of these people in They've, hired, they've advanced, hired other people in the same thing. Then you started getting woke reporters coming in, like if you want to just talk about the media. By Obama's second term, I think that's when the pushback should have happened. You know, a lot of people were like, oh, well, they went crazy after Trump. I'm like, no, they went crazy in Obama's second term. And I don't think it would have mattered who ran as a Republican candidate. You know, if a Republican had won, they would have gone almost as crazy as they did with Trump. I think this problem needed to be nipped in the bud back in like 2012. So um, I agree with you that they started to go crazy in Obama's second term. And that's what the data shows. It shows that the great awakening within news media, the skyrocketing of woke terminology, like woke, like white privilege and oppression and marginalization. And then like my favorite is like the word people of color, the phrase people of color next to the phrase marginalized or oppressed, right? You know, creating that neural synapse in your mind and you in the good white liberals mind that people of color are marginalized and oppressed, right? You know, that all started around 2011, 2012, when the New York Times erected its paywall and when digital media, when, when establishment media companies started to go digital and understand how digital media works that's when those words started to proliferate because they figured out how to hack into the emotions of affluent white liberals and to get them to click on things and to get them to stay on page, right? They were, they were simply hacking um, Google search optimization. That's where all that came from. And by 2015, um, it, the, the sociologists like Zach Goldberg, brilliant Zach Goldberg, found that they had shifted public opinion among white liberals to where white liberals were more radical on race than blacks and Hispanics. That, so that was the, the great awakening. It started in the media. And Zach is very clear in his research that it really caused that shift in public opinion. You're totally right. It preceded Trump. I do think if, you know, Ted Cruz had won or Mitt Romney had won, um, Mitt Romney didn't run against Trump, but, you know, if Marco Rubio had won, if one of these people had won, it it wouldn't have been quite, you wouldn't have seen, you know, Rubio's name 97,000 times in the New York Times in 2017, because I think a lot of what enraged the left about Trump was about class was he was so clearly a tribune of the forgotten erased working class, um, increasingly of all races, by the way. And I think that sort of return of the repressed, you know, the voice of the voiceless, you know, rising up and poking them in the eye and being so undignified about it, it really made them crazy for the cuff. He was the perfect combination of like 
actually being undignified and gross and, and, you know, uh, appalling in his speech and representing the class interests of the erased working class that the Democrats had abandoned with a lot of his sort of very protectionist economic policies, which were things that Bernie Sanders had been pushing in 2015. So I think that that, you know, putting the lie to a lot of their pieties, which, you know, as I argue in my book, are about disguising the ways in which they've benefited from economic inequality. So I think that he was a really unique blend that that made them really go crazy essentially and they're still they're still in the grip of it um so i a little bit dispute you uh, on that but um i totally agree with you that it started before trump and i think in fact trump was very clearly a reaction to to rising wokeness and to the erasure of the working class and the erasure of class issues from the liberal agenda okay just kind of sticking with this because this this is something that's starting to it's really frustrated me over the last couple of years um I guess, especially like since the last U.S. election, okay, when Trump got elected, there, there were a lot of people like, okay, the New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, whatever. Okay, they're going to cover Trump. Their their news outlets, you know, that's their job. I'm not arguing about that. Like, I'm not talking about maybe yes, they did too much, but they're going to cover the president, right? So that's that's not an issue. But like, quote unquote, public intellectuals. So there were a lot of people who said you know, what you kind of hinted out there that the excesses of the left is what caused people to vote for Trump. Like, you know, people who had voted twice for Obama. Yeah. All of a sudden were voting for Trump. Like they didn't. Eight just million. Become, yeah. Eight million. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 I mean, you can't, you know, you can't just count that off to racism and whatever. So there were a lot of people who'd said that right after he got elected, but pretty much, you know, right around the time of the inauguration, it all, yeah, it went to all Trump all the time about how yeah. bad it was, and it they didn't do anything to fix their own side or make their side more electable. Yeah. Like, yeah, honestly, I, I you know it, it's it's kind of hard to say it now, like you know hindsight, whatever. But I don't. I think if COVID hadn't happened, I think we'd be in a second Trump term right now. Be For a sure. And I'm I'm like okay, everyone's still. I mean, you're still Sam Harris. He's still fighting Trump. Like he's still fighting against trump it's embarrassing yeah. and i'm like okay you know what's going to happen when the democrats get spanked in the in the midterms yeah. like are, is it you know like we saw what happened with yunkin in virginia and like you know, a lot of these families were asian and they're calling yeah. them white supremacists <laughs> and it's like come on so if if the republicans do well in the in the midterms it's going to be a nightmare again and like I'm, I'm like i said the frustration i have is you didn't make your side electable like you didn't fix your side. It got worse. And it like, like I said, that, that, and it frustrates me not because I'm an American, because I have that woke spillover coming into Canada. And I mean, we've got a completely woke prime minister with, with we, we have a ministry of critical race theory for Christ's sakes. That has Are you really? Ent- okay. We have a ministry of diversity, inclusion, and youth. And their biggest, their first mandate is to set up an anti-racism secretariat for the oh, government to make sure God. the government is anti-racist. Oh no, that's terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm la- I'm laughing because like I can't believe somebody has it worse than me. Oh, oh God, we we have it so bad. Um, but yeah, like that's like, but like they said, that's why I'm so frustrated. I'm like, you you had four years to try to fix your side and you yeah. didn't, and you're still doing it. You're still fighting against Trump. When I mean, come on. It's just, I, I sorry, I had to I had to get that out. I was just. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I hear you. I think that there's, um, I think it seems very clear that the Democrats are not going to do well in the midterms. Um, uh, my frustration right now is with the Republicans not taking advantage of this moment um, because it seems to me like it's so clear the ways in which the Democrats have abandoned the working class, um, the way that they have failed to, um, you know, have anything remotely uh, resembling some sort of black agenda that would actually help the problems in the black community that the black community faces. And it seems to me like there's such an opportunity here for Republicans to go into places like Oakland, you know, or Brownsville and say, look, I am going to run on school choice and making sure your kids don't get shot on their way to the school that you choose and that they could clean up and, and they just don't show up. And I, so I feel like a lot of frustration with both sides. Like I feel a frustration with the Democrats for abandoning the people they claim to represent and trying to force progressivism on them when it's clearly not a good fit for this community and clearly does nothing for them further immiserates them. But then on the other side, it's like, it's so obvious, you know, to two thirds of the black community is either conservative or moderate. And yet they're stuck voting for the Democrats because the Republicans don't sh- show up. So I feel like there's that that failure to take advantage of that moment. Um, it's pretty much all I talk about when I go on conservative radio shows, because I really I just don't understand it. And I I, I think this is like a really important issue. <laughs> hey, um, like I, I don't know enough about that to comment on that. But one thing I will say. OK, the when I first got back from overseas and I started seeing all this stuff and I mean, it was like, it was centered more, more on Islam, but uh, two things went through my head and there was a quote from paradise lost. And it was, you know, like bash the devil stood and felt how awful goodness is. And that's what these people did. You know, like, I mean, it goes on to see like how it's all virtue and shape and whatever. Like they turned goodness awful. That's what these people did. Like the, the the woke, the social justice warriors, whatever you want to call them, they turned goodness awful. And the other thing that went through my head was, um, I think it's from Henry the Fourth or Henry the Eighth. Huh? Richard Richard the Third. <laughs> Richard the Third says a line, and it's he goes on. It's a long soliloquy, but one of the lines is, "I'm going to I'm going to set the murderous Machiavelli to school." And I was like, "Okay, you're getting an overcorrection." Like, yeah. so what I see the Republicans doing now, and okay, the anti CRT bills again, I not a hundred percent. Okay, I don't like the way some of them are written. Some of them I thought were written very well, like the one in North Dakota. Sorry, I think it's Idaho, where all they did was reiterate the federal civil rights law and state civil rights law. They just said we we are upholding this, and you can't teach anything in your classroom that you know contra- like contradicts, like goes right. Against- exactly, it's like there are actually laws out there that you know obviate uh, critical race theory. You know, you just have to enforce those. <laughs> When I see what's going on in places like Oklahoma, where they're letting parents sue libraries for books that they have that the parents don't like, okay, that is an overcorrection because nothing was being done and parents wanted something done. Right, or right. what's going on in Texas? Like, uh, you know, yeah, no, I don't want critical race theory based education, just like I don't want intelligent design. But if they want to have, and I obviously I think it has to be age appropriate, but if they want to have how to be an anti racist in the high school library, I think that should be fine. Right. Totally. You combat bad ideas with good ideas, right? Like that's, that's the core of liberalism. <laughs> so like, uh, that's where I think, like, that's my frustration with the Republicans right now is they are doing that overcorrection and yeah, they're not doing what, you know, like people like Matt Getz and Marley, Marjorie Taylor Greene should not be your face. Um, 
but on their side too, like there might be a bit of frustration, like Trump's diamond plan or platinum plan or whatever. I don't know all the details of it, but like, you know, so good. And he put it out a month before the election, like the cynical yokels that they are. And it's, it's so frustrating because that platinum plan would have been such a game changer. And I think it would have been a game changer in the election. Where were they? Why didn't he come in on day one with that and say, you know what? Whatever I do, whatever else I do, I'm going to do this. Like, it's just, it's frustrating because they had, you know, I I forget who said this recently, but, you know, Trump had a lot of the right answers to a lot of the biggest questions, but he was just such an nincompoop and a narcissist that he just couldn't, he couldn't keep it together (laughs) long enough to make it happen. But but, I mean, again, that's like why I, why I think your book is so important. It's thank you. Okay. You know, we need to fix academia, but after that, you have to fix journalism. Because, I mean, if people don't have access to information or or things that they can trust, I mean, okay, this is going to go a little bit past media for a second, but, you know, okay, COVID, where we are right now with COVID. Now, the whole debate around vaccines or whatever, but you had the American Medical Association, you had the New England Journal of Medicine, you had, uh, you know, whatever, a thousand plus doctors I mean, and then, you know, CNN, New York Times, all these places going on about how racism is a worse virus than COVID and how, you know, they're not freaking out about the Black Lives Matter protests and the riots, but people going to park, people going to a church service in a parking lot in their cars, getting ticketed while they were sitting inside their cars. And they're, you know, they're calling those people idiots and yahoos and stuff. And then, you know, again, American Medical Association, uh, whatever, ACLU is not science, but I'm trying to think of who else. I think maybe the APA. And again, I think. Well, the CDC itself was. Yeah, No, but I'm talking about when they were talking about uh, birthing persons instead of women. For Okay. I'm like, okay, these are medical, like these are quote unquote respected medical outlets or, you know, you know, science outlets and they're denying biology. Now you don't want to trust them about the vaccine. You know, like it's. I'm like you, there's so much that was caused so much of like the vaccine hesitancy, so much of all this stuff that was caused because of bad reporting and how corrupt these organizations have gotten. And I I mean, if we had a reliable media, maybe these organizations wouldn't have gotten that bad. You know, it's, it's like, I mean, you look at this and these, these places, I don't know if you can trust them again. It's really bad. I mean, the CDC beclowning itself at the moment when Americans most needed it to be a bulwark against polarization and partisanship and to be above the fray and to tell them what to do, it became impossible to trust anything that they said because Mm -hmm. of their clear partisan bent. And then if you said that you were, you know, called a conspiracy theorist or whatever, and, you know, like you said, you know, the people getting, you know, basically penalized for being religious and, um, while they had to watch, you know, the the kind of religion of the other side, the politics of the other side get a, a, a pass. It, it, um, I mean, the the just the and but it's it's not just that. Um, Sagar and Jetty made a really good point last week on uh, breaking points. He said Twitter banned Trump right after January sixth. Turns out Trump is like one of the only people pushing the vaccine on the right. Certainly among his supporters, 
all of the other people, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, all of these people, you know, they're sort of kowtowing to the mob and being like, don't get it, don't get it, whatever. I don't know if they're actually saying don't get it, but, you know, very much, you know, pushing the kind of conspiracy theories. Trump is the only one out there being like, this has my name on it. Go get it. This is my achievement. Go get it. And they kicked him off of Twitter, meaning like they kicked off a person with 40 million followers who could have told people to go get the vaccine. And like, how much did that change the conversation? Right. So in order to, you know, stop him from all of this stuff around the election, from spreading that stuff, from spreading all that misinformation about the election, they actually maybe stopped him from spreading probably true things about the vaccine, which was that, you know, in some cases, at least in Delta, it seemed like it was very effective. So, it, you know, it's it's this this, you know, I don't want to say collusion, but it's like there's this sort of very it's very clear that there's a new democratic coalition that includes big tech and, you know, Silicon Valley, big tech, the CDC, a lot of the medical establishment, especially when it comes to gender issues and when it comes to, to um, um, uh, uh, COVID and then, you know, the university and journalism, right. And the media, that's anything that's not conservative media is part of that same kind of cohort that's now really the center of gravity on the Democrat side is extremely powerful. There's an almost complete lock on cultural institutions. That's why movies and TV shows and books are terrible now because everyone is sort of creating art, like, you know, with trembling fingers, like trying to make sure that they don't, they don't offend anybody. And, you know, to, for, to ask people to act like that's not happening or to put the responsibility on people who don't have a college education, who maybe don't even have a good high school education, expect them to tease out where you're being a Looney Tunes partisan hack and where you're actually giving them information, medical information that they need. You know what I mean? It's, it's a big ask to ask people who know you hate them, right? Who know you have contempt for them because you never bother to hide it. But I mean, there's a lot of other things. Like it's just the the misinformation, or just like I shouldn't even say misinformation. Like just the 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 conflicting messaging. Again, you know, I'm not one way or another. I'm not talking about election stolen or whatever because I I I, you know, I think it's been pretty well shown that it wasn't. Um, Agreed. But, For the record, okay, yeah. Agree. But, but <laughs> let's just. Okay, so you've got one side again saying, okay, racism is the worst virus in COVID. It's okay. Like they're not denouncing the riots or the protests. I mean, a story came out about how New York City and I believe Washington State and California, I know from New York City for a fact, um, were telling the contact tracers not to ask people explicitly if they went to BLM protests. If the person gave that information up, fine, but don't ask them. They wanted to hide that. Now, okay, you've got that going on. And then they're saying you can't stand in line to go vote. So now when Trump says they're doing, they want to mail in votes because they want to steal the election from me, both of these are, you, know, you could say they're ludicrous statements, but what makes more logical sense, a racially conscious virus that's not going to, you know, that's <laughs> not going to attack you if you go to BLM protests or that they're lying to you and they're trying to steal the election. I mean, one of them, okay, like I said, you can say they're both crazy, but one of them makes more sense than the other. And you know, um, like so, so to be fair, that they, they did make the argument that the BLM protests were outside and that a lot of the people were masked. And the funny thing, I saw a hilarious TikTok. Um, it was <laughs> someone who had been at the BLM, um, I guess maybe even not just the protests, but the riots. And she was watching f footage of the January 6th uh, assailants and she was just cracking up and like, 
these guys aren't even wearing masks. Like they don't know how to do crimes. Like, are they crazy? (laughs) The first thing you do is put on a mask. So to be fair, you know, like they, they were outside, people were wearing masks. I don't know that they were wrong to tell people that that it's okay to go to the BLM rallies. The problem was when they told people they can't go to church when it's outside, or they can't go to, you know, ball games, or they can't do, you know what I mean? Follow their conscience to do the things that are important to them. Right. It was like the privileging of one spiritual exercise over another, or one, you know, political one over another. But um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, essentially. I just wanted to throw out there that they did make that, you know, stipulation. It wasn't just like, you know, racism is a greater threat than COVID or that the, the virus itself was supposedly like could tell where you had got it. Although, you know, definitely one got the impression that they thought that. <laughs> yeah, but e- even by then, I mean, there was, if you followed certain people and I don't want to, like, he might have done it because I know Nicholas Christakis did a lot of stuff on COVID, but it might have been some, it might have been other, a couple other people. Like, just because you were masked, it depends on how much time you're spending around people. So just because you're masked and you're six feet away doesn't mean, even if you're outside, you can't be in close proximity. Oh, indefinitely. And now we know that the cloth masks do absolutely yeah. nothing, right? It's so, like, if you so, don't have a can 95, like forget about it, but they, they didn't yeah. know that at the time. Yeah. But the funny thing is, instead of saying that, instead of saying we were wrong, right. Yeah. They're now saying, well, now your child needs a KN95, right. Instead of yeah. saying like, look, you know, like, okay, we got this wrong. The cloth mask, they're saying now, no, you have to spend all this money and get the upgraded mask or we won't let them in. It's like ridiculous. Yeah. But that's, that's another, I think that's another problem here is they never admit that they were wrong. Exactly. They're just like, oh, we, no, no, we were always saying this. Yeah. It's like bullshit. Yeah. Or Fauci a couple of weeks ago saying, look, we can't just put society on a hold. And I'm like, where were you before one in five American businesses was shut down? Like, come on. Like, how dare you say that now? Okay. Uh, about, okay. About that. With, with like the way this is all being reported and, the, and the, like the fear mongering that was going on. I mean, there was a thing that just came out today about like how many trillions of dollars the, the, the wealthiest, you know, people in the United States made over the pandemic. You know, like you're talking about the businesses that shut down. Like, like again, these useless rules. Like you can go into a Walmart, you know, because they can control the number of people that come in, but you can't go into a little mom and pop shop. But I'm sure a little mom and pop shop can put up a sign saying, "Okay, we'll only let in three people at a time" or something. Like I don't think that's too hard for them to take care of. You know, so you're letting people, you know, they could find out yeah, order off Amazon, but how many people were working in the warehouse? You know, yeah. they really they they conflated what was an economic, a question of economic privilege, right? Being able to stay home and have a working class person bring you your food, you know, and your cat food and all, you know, be police officers mm. and, you know, be in, out in the streets. That's an economic thing. And they conflated that with virtue, you know, with like being free of the virus and like, you know, slow the spread and we're the ones who care and what, you know, how could you be so individualistic and not care about anybody else? You know, and that that's essentially the thesis of my book is that wokeness is essentially, you know, affluent elites dressing up their economic privilege as a form of virtue, you know, as a form of social justice. And, and uh, it's, it's deplorable. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw someone say that like not too long ago. I think it was just right after New Year's, blah, blah, blah. The virus is still a big thing. You know, do your part, stay at home, just order all your food. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So the, do so your the, part, you know, stay at home and expose working class people to this thing, like a good rich person, like, like a good liberal, right? That's what liberals do is they expose the working class and they protect themselves. Or, or the hypocrisy. And again, it's, 
you know, whatever. Now you're hearing about Boris Johnson, the party, you know, like you know, Downing Street or over Christmas, but like they're, you know, showing pictures of events and all the attendees, you know, all the socialites, whatever they're, none of them have their masks on, but all the people doing all the work all are the walking servants, around. Yeah. yeah. And it's, again, it's like, like you people are degrading like you're, like you're degrading yourselves as well as like you know, you're kind of no, like totally down at the- totally glenn greenwald had a really really beautiful piece after uh aoc went to the met gala where he he really pointed out that like the thing here is not what's written on her the back of her dress the thing is what's written on the faces of all the celebs with no masks and the sort of surf class behind them all masks you know carrying her train and literally waiting on the people who have you know have the economic privilege to not wear their masks it is really it's really disgusting because you can it's so clear you know and you know like i feel for example you know i don't like being asked for my vaccine status when i go to a restaurant because i think it's it's you know i first of all i think it's racist given the demographic breakdown in america and i, I feel like it's sort of contravenes like my sense of autonomy or whatever but hell if i am going to make a, a working class person be the front lines of my, you know, outrage. Like I would never do that. You know, like I would never make them be, you know what I mean? Stand in the face of my fury, my political feelings. No, I'm going to show it to them and, and thank my lucky stars that I don't have to be a hostess at a restaurant because I have the privilege to work for my house, you know? And I think that you just see so few people having that point of view, like just respect the people whose jobs are not as comfortable as yours that enable you to sit at home in your pajamas, have some humility, to that privilege yeah. no they never do okay um i don't want to keep you too too much longer but i ask you about this because i mean the news coverage of the hostage taking in the synagogue yeah in texas well how did it tell me how you how you saw that because you you you're so smart on these kinds of things i <laughs> know okay, but, no, but I'm, I'm looking at this and okay the guardian and bbc said blah 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 hostage you I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it was a like hostage situation in, in Texas. And they put hostage in quotes. Yeah, I saw that. Okay, I mean, like, okay. Hostage, <laughs> you know, alleged <laughs> hostage. Yeah, like, come on. No, but I mean, I, I saw this and it's God, just. I know. Like, I, okay, I, I, and I don't want to make the comparisons or whatever, but I mean, it, it, I, my mind ran to the Tree of Life shooting. And it was like, okay, the guy was a white supremacist. I'm not defending the guy who did it. And whatever they said about him was right. They, but they didn't stop to think, will this paint all white people as bad or whatever? Because the guy was a white supremacist. You talk about white supremacy. But in this, I mean, you know, right away, you're talking about Islamophobia and this and that. It's like, no. The hostages were still at gunpoint when you had people being like, a lot of Islamophobia is going to come out because of this. Let's all be careful. You know, let, let us remember who the real victim of this anti-Semitism yeah, is. I'm like, come on. <laughs> and it just, no, but it drives me crazy. Like, oh, so you disgusting. Know, but, but absolutely. But okay. But also then if look, look back to, I think it was Hanukkah in 2019 when you had like that spate of attacks. Yeah. There was one again, an article about how let it was. I believe it was the after the worst attack when it was a black man who'd end up killing that rabbi, and they you know they said, oh, let's not have this incident. You know, ha- let's not use this incident to have whiteness divide us. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Pardon? Like, I, mean, I think actually Rashida Talib, Congresswoman Talib, actually called him a white supremacist and was like, he's a black Israelite. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but no, but I mean, that's what I mean, like the. 
Yeah. I, we talked about this last time too, but I mean, it's, 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 there's a really insidious form of anti-Semitism coming out of the left. And it's, I mean, it's like, you saw it again in the BLM riots. You know, you had Nicole Hannah Jones talking about how whiteness is property and it wasn't a big deal that some synagogues got vandalized. Yeah. It's so <laughs> funny because, you know, it's so, it's, it's like, it's so racist to say you can't condemn anti-Semitism in the Muslim community because it suggests that all Muslims are actually complicit when actually many, many Muslims are fighting the anti-Semitism in their communities, right? Like they obviously don't support it. And it's the same thing with crime in the black community, you know, to act like we can't talk about it, right? Because it's somehow racist to talk about it, not only does that ensure that more black children are going to die, but it suggests that black people don't hate crime, like that they don't oppose crime. <laughs> you know, it's like the idea that somehow every person of this race is implicated in the crimes of like, you know, a hostage taker who came out of nowhere, right, who was acting completely by himself, like that somehow we can't say, look, the, the, the waters he was swimming in told him that the way you get somebody out of prison in America is you go to a synagogue and you have that synagogue call a New York synagogue and then that rabbi called the president and boom, you know, like step three profit, right? Like they get, you know, they're going to release them, right? You just get your Jews in a row and then, right? Like it's like, it's, it's like the idea that like pointing this out is somehow dangerous, to Muslims, as opposed to like the opposite, that allowing this to proliferate, like allowing these stupid ideas to proliferate unchecked, like that is the thing that is dangerous. But it's like, you you know, if, if somebody comes from a quote unquote marginalized community, there's a lot of pressure among, you know, left wing media types and all of the people around them, all the people in that activist Twitter set to really either sort of memory hole it or just have a complete taboo about talking about it or make sure we have the right context. And I mean, it, to Jews, it definitely feels like this is this is, gets even worse with anti-Semitism because like in the woke binary, we get put on the side of whites. And of course, nobody's allowed to feel sympathy for whites. But I really do think that it's sort of I, I think the primary victims of this mentality are black children and black elderly people and black people who are the victims of crimes that nobody's willing to talk about. Yeah, there's I mean, I used to call it benevolent bigotry, but it's just plain old bigotry. I mean, the, the, like it's, you know, like the, that bigotry of low expectations. And I said this before and it's, you know what, give me the out and out hostile racism of a David Duke, as opposed to this wishy-washy, like, like the stuff that comes from like what you're talking about, like on that side of the left, right? Like the woke left or whatever, the, the that side of it, it's, you know, like a David Duke might say, Oh, look at these Joe, whatever X people, they don't know how to take care of themselves. We have to go fix their problems. Cause they're, you know, they're, they're whatever they're children, they're useless, whatever they go. But from the woke side, it's not only is it, do we have to, well, we have to go there and help you fix it, but you're too facile to have caused it yourself because, you know, we originally caused it for you. Now we have right. to go fix it. Right. So I'd be like, at least David Duke's giving me the agency of saying I caused my own shit. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, what, does I, it, what does it feel like to be on the receiving end of this? I, I, I don't take it. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. Like I'm, I'm not going to be infantilized. Like it's, yeah. you know, I, I, you can, obviously I'm not saying be racist towards me, but I mean, you know, okay, with my friends and, Obviously, I think it depends on who you are and who you, you know, how you know the people. But, you know, these are people I've known since high school or grade school, and we joke around and go, you know, 
they'll make fun of me. I'll make fun of them. Right. So it's kind of like, okay, that's your acceptance type of thing, but we make fun of everyone and everything. So I, I, but if they were to treat me differently, like, okay, well, we're not going to, you know, make any brown jokes or like, you know, jokes about Indian people or whatever around you because, you know, it's going to hurt your feelings. Like, no, screw that. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like that's actually treating someone differently. That's actually treating them as, okay, you're not able to take that. You're too weak and fragile. It's like, no, I'm not. (laughs) Like, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, like I said, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer, but um, if you got any last words about, you know, how maybe we can get around this or like how people can try to avoid being siloed in by the media, like just. (laughs) Yeah, I would say like, I think the most important things are, um, uh, you know, having humility towards other Americans, other people, other people Mm -hmm. who have less than you, other people who disagree with you. And, um, you know, just keeping in mind that every time you feel like that sense of rage reading something on the internet, someone's making a million dollars off of your heart and you don't have to let them do that. You can train yourself to be like, instead of being like, oh, I can't believe somebody thinks this on the internet. You can train yourself to be like, oh, someone's trying to make money off of me, you know, and remember that you don't have to hate your fellow American for somebody else's profit motive. That's sort of the, I think the lesson of my book. (laughs) Well, great. Well, thank you very much. It was great talking to you again. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you both on Twitter and your podcast and having me, your interests. And really, thank you for all the kind things you said about my book. It really, really means a lot to me coming from you. Oh, thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back.